Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Alice Grist. Welcome, Alice. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> Hi, welcome. Um, Alice is the author of three books. Her first book was The High-Heeled Guide to Enlightenment, which saw Alice... Uh, I was tempted to say fall down a rabbit hole, but which saw Alice explore alternative spirituality from her modern-day fun-loving perspective. The second is Prediction Magazine award-winning book, The High-Heeled Guide to Spiritual Living. Following Alice's dabbling with different faiths, she decided to forget all of them and simply live spiritually. This book is a fiery and funny account of just what she learned. And then her third book, Dear Poppy Seed, A Soulful Mama's Pregnancy Journal, is a personal, spiritual, and very human account of her first pregnancy, recently published. Alice is a contributor to various magazines and the Huffington Post and so on, and is a publisher. So we'll maybe touch upon some of that stuff. She lives in uh, the UK with her husband James, daughter baby, baby daughter Ivy, and two cats Molly and Jimmy. Jimmy J I M I was named after Jimi Hendrix, and her husband happens to be a rock musician. I just talked to him while getting her microphone and stuff set up. Now the subtitle of this show, Alice, as you probably know, is "Conversations with Spiritually Awakened People," and. I probably should change that to awakening because awakened has this sort of finality to it, you know, which makes it sound like you can't get any more awake uh, than than you are. And my experience in talking to all these people is that we're all on the journey, you know. Everyone is still evolving, growing, deepening, clarifying, whatever you want to call it. And there, from my perspective, is no end to it. Um, so, you know, your first book, uh, High Heeled Guide to Enlightenment, might imply that you are enlightened. And I don't know if you would go so, so far as to say that. Uh, no, and don't we all go back to sleep sometimes as well? Yeah. Like every night, <laughs> all as awakened people. Uh, it's quite easy to nod off. At a certain stage, awakened people don't go back to sleep. Um, they, their body sleeps, their mind sleeps, but inner awareness is retained throughout sleep. So, you know, that, that kind of is an indication of, you know, the fact that there are stages to this game and, uh, and we're all growing in it. But, you know, I, I have friends who haven't slept in decades. Lucky them. <laughs> <laughs> they, their, their body sleeps, they snore, but the, the inner awareness remains, the, the self remains. Uh, awake to itself, despite the dullness of sleep. So I understand from you know having poked around in your books a bit that uh, you know at a certain stage you were you know the most unlikely candidate to be writing books like this. You're you know kind of a party girl and just concerned with fairly superficial things. And then at, at a certain point, like like most of us were at a certain age, and then at a certain point things began to wake up for you. Yeah, I mean I was really lucky as well because. Yeah, I had a, a phase of, you know, being the party girl and being obsessed with shoes and, and whatnot. <laughs> but actually, um, my early life was completely different to that. And my dad was the local vicar of the Church of England church. Um, so I was brought up as the vicar's daughter for a good few years. Mm-hmm. Um, following that, he left the church. Um, and he kind of, I guess, wandered in the wilderness for a little while, but was still feeling very faith-led. And I think he did, probably similar to what I did, was experiment with different faiths to try and find out what was right for him. And then um, the vicar became a Wiccan high priest hmm. in the end. Um, so I was brought up, obviously, initially with that uh, very formalized Christian faith, and that moved through to 
a pagan tradition faith that I was brought up as a teenager with. Um, and so he taught me, and with his uh, wife, my stepmom, and they taught me all about things like tarot and healing and meditation, mm-hmm. um, which I absolutely loved and adored, and particularly as a teenage young woman, um, I just really, really got into that. And it was a little bit later on, I guess, when you become a bit too cool to be doing what your parents do. Um, and I went off to university and things like that, and you start this party lifestyle um, that I'm sure you know, you're familiar with over the pond, um, and that's very prevalent here in the UK as well. Um, and just, you know, the last thing I was thinking about was anything faith-led, um, and it was just the weekend, you know, and, and what I was doing that week, what I was wearing, um, where we were going on a Saturday night, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it got too much. It it kind of, the, the joy of it very quickly ran short and started to go a bit rusty and, you know, I was looking, you know, as so many people do, looking for something more, and that's what took me back to my childhood and took me back to what I learned there. And not just in terms of spirituality, but in terms of who am I? You know, there were a lot of things I explored at the same time, um, like writing, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that's how those two things came together. Um, and writing was something I enjoyed as a child. Other silly things like acting, I had a brief stint as an actress at the local um, <laughs> amateur dram, amdram society at the same time. But the thing that kind of stuck with me through all of that was the spirituality and the writing and kind of came together. Mm. What is your current understanding of what spirituality is? And maybe you could lump it in with enlightenment also. You know, how would you define those terms since you used them in the titles of two of your books? Yeah, you know, the more I get asked that question, the, the less of an answer I have because mm-hmm. it is so fluid and changeable. Um, I think right now, being a mother and being someone who's, who's been a mother for now 11 months, spirituality for me right now is very much it's moment to moment. It's what happens with my little girl. It's the relationship, the bond I have with her. It's life in itself. You know, she is life. She's my life. And, and that has completely consumed me. And I think that that living in the moment is very powerful. It's something I talk about in, in both of my you know, spiritual books. And it's something that I, I guess I've struggled to do. I think we all struggle to do at the beginning of our spiritual paths. Um, but having Ivy has absolutely you know, thrown me headfirst into that reality. Um, and so to me, spirituality at the moment is it's moments. It's perfect moments, perfect moments with her. You know, I've just got back from Tunisia. I had a perfect moment which wasn't to do with her actually a few days ago where I went into the sea and I was in the sea for maybe 10 minutes and it was just blissful just to have that silence and that peace and to be connected to every single one of the elements and, and I just thought wow when was the last time I did this you know um, and it was just it was quite awe inspiring um, and yeah like I said that was 10 minutes it was a very brief short you know spiritual moment but I just think that it's it's almost like this rolling thing for me at the moment. Everything, life is spiritual. And that's what I talk about in my books is, you know, I think there's a habit sometimes in the spiritual community and, and people to say, oh, well, that's not very spiritual and this isn't very spiritual and, oh, that person didn't act very spiritual when they did such a thing. Um, or, you know, you hear the phrase, oh, and they call themselves spiritual. But actually, isn't every, everything spiritual, the chaos, the drama, the beauty, the babies, the sea, you know? I guess that's kind of where I'm at at the minute is every single thing that happens in our lives that we create that happens to us or you know is all part of a big bigger spiritual pattern mm. that we kind of have to muddle through some days <laughs> well you know as the saying goes beauty is in the eye of the beholder so obviously you know 
10 people can be sitting at a bus stop and, and there are 10 different experiences being had there, you know. And for some uh, one of those 10 people, it might be a profoundly spiritual experience just sitting there at the bus stop. Uh, and the others are like, oh, God, i got to go to work. And what a, it's a rainy day. What a drag, <laughs> you know. And you've got to find the spirituality in that, if you want, I guess, if you want to become a spiritual person. And, you know, I think everyone's a spiritual person. I sometimes even get annoyed at the term spiritual um, because I think it just can't even encompass what we're talking about. But I do think, you know, everyone, like you're saying, has a completely unique take on spirituality. And that's what, one of the things I talk about in my books is, please, God, Goddess, don't look at me as any kind of guru or expert. It's, you know, I'm experimenting as much as the next person. And I'm a, I want my readers to be able to look at their own lives and say, okay, I, I, get, I like what I, where Alice is coming from, but for me it was this, it was A, B, and C, and it was these events. Mm-hmm. You know, and look at it in that way. Yeah. This show, this Buddha at the Gas Pump, tends to do that also because if a person get, really gets into it and starts listening to a lot of interviews, there are so many different flavors on basically the same ice cream, but there's so many different flavors, you know, and uh, after a while you kind of relax and get comfortable with the fact that there are many paths up the mountain, if we want to use that metaphor, and that you have to kind of find the one that works for you. Definitely. Mm. But of course it all points back to, you know, something I alluded to with the bus stop example, and that is shifting your subjective perspective such that the the spirituality inherent in each moment is appreciated, you know. Mm, and that's the journey. <laughs> yeah. Cleansing the, William, the, the, the windows of perception, you know, to quote William Blake. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a big dose of therapy. That's one of the things I say in my books, you know, is particularly my first book, you know, going through all these different faiths and taking from them what I found interesting and what worked for me. It was really, you know, I could have gone to a psychologist for a long period of time and probably had the same kind of result or to a therapist or a counsellor. Maybe. Because, yeah, I just, I find it so empowering but you have to sort of sift through all this rubbish that's going on in your head and I think all of us get mired in that and the society kind of promotes it. Um, And it's very difficult to step away from, you know, the way our society expects us to be, the way our brains have just become out of habit and and to kind of get to the essence of who you are. Mm -hmm. But it's also so worth doing. Yeah, and why would you say it's, why do you think it's difficult? I think we're just so mired in stuff. You know, the brain is a funny creature. It can be moulded and it can be changed, but it can take a little bit of time and it can be very, very difficult for people to even realize there's anything wrong with the way they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can look across a, a section of humanity and some people will be more enlightened and more aware of what's going on in their mind. And some people just really won't have a clue. And, you know, yesterday I was on a plane and there was a lady in the seats behind us. And bless her, she was clearly quite drunk and she was clearly had lived a, a difficult lifestyle. I mean, I, I, I can only say so much. She was just a woman sat behind me. I really don't know what was going on with her. But I was just guessing and from what I could hear her saying. And she, she felt very sorry for herself. And, you know, someone had asked her to stop smoking, you know, one of those pretend cigarette things. Oh, yeah, like just, electronic cigarette mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. And she was just devastated by this and she was crying and she couldn't understand and she thought everyone thought she was a bad person <laughs> and then five minutes later she was offering her husband sex acts and I heard all of this. On and the plane? Just, <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, dear Lord, what's going on behind? And I just thought, this, this woman, 
you know, I'm not here to judge her. She's just, I just thought she's so far removed from the existence that I know in my life and in my body and in my mind. And I thought, I wonder if she and I were to sit down and to try to have a conversation about maybe, you know, spirituality, how that would go. Because, bless her, she's in such a different existence. And that's why I think it's so hard for, for some people to kind of get through this mess of life experiences that's in their heads um, and work a way towards something more enlightened. Mm. There's a Native American saying, which you've probably heard, which is, don't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. You know, yeah. mo moccasins are a type of shoe that the Native yeah. Americans wore. Life is intense for most people. I mean, even for people who have it pretty good, it can be very intense. But for billions of people, it's extremely intense. You know, and, and the circumstances into yeah, the, the circumstances into which one is born are often so challenging. Mm. Uh, I mean, look at that factory collapse in Bangladesh recently, and the, the lives those women lived, and and so on. And so, you know, one wonders about the uh, accessibility of spirituality as we are defining it, to most people. Because most people, it's just a matter of survival, you know, mm -hmm. and dealing with, you know, horrible long hours of work and, you know, poverty and, and hunger and all kinds of stuff. And I don't sound, mean to sound morbid, but uh, you've you got to have compassion for people, you know, what they're up against. And, yeah, it's uh, a difficult, difficult world. And that's one of the things I talk about in, in High Hill Guides to uh, Spiritual Living, particularly, mm -hmm. is, you know, the chaos and the darkness and the fact that, I think so many people, look, probably because of the religious example that's been set that sort of presents heaven and hell and this idea of light, um, which is a lovely idea, and, but when people are living very difficult, dark lives, the idea of light can seem very, very far away. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we have to dig into our suffering to actually find any kind of light, and even then it might only be the smallest, smallest chink, mm. and you have to kind of grasp that with two hands, and I think some people, like you say, who've, who've lived very, very difficult lives may not even be capable of doing that at this particular moment, and maybe something will happen later down the line, and they will be, but I believe that everyone's given opportunities time and time again. But again, you know, as, alongside this, the fact that life is very difficult, I think we live in a culture that makes it very difficult to have any kind of faith, because you know, popular culture in particular, and this is for people who haven't even had difficult lives, you know, popular culture consumes us with thinking about shopping and what we're going to purchase and all of that consumer stuff or what we're going to watch on television at night and who the latest singer is and what they like. <laughs> and they probably like fast cars and women. So, you know, <laughs> there's anything spiritually is again far far removed and that's the audience that I'm kind of trying to write for is this, the people who are consumed in popular culture and where I was you know who I believe would be interested in something to do with faith who probably go around and say things like oh it happened for a reason you know and people say that kind of thing quite offhand glibly um, yeah. yeah but have they ever stopped to think what they actually mean by that? Mm. Um, because there is, there's actually a huge amount of meaning behind that, and they're kind of confessing a belief in more to life and all kinds of things when you say something as simple as that. Um, and it's just you know, taking that and exploring that and, and looking at it more deeply. Mm. Yeah, I think the points that we're touching on here actually 
they're kind of the tip of the iceberg of, of something that's very deep in the nature of creation, which is that, you know, in order to individuate at all, you know, there, there had to be a sort of a hiding quality that came in. If we think back to the Big Bang and, you know, the, somehow a manifestation coming out of an un, unmanifest field of potentiality, the very process of manifestation was one in which, you know, things became specific, isolated, localized, and in, in that localization, the unboundedness was lost, as if as if the ocean were kind of somehow lost in a drop. You know, the word Maya in Sanskrit, um, and it's it's very powerful force, and everyone is caught up in it to whatever extent. But just as that's a very powerful force, there's a very kind of powerful pull to come back to the source, and we we have that ingrained in us as much as we have. The tendency to sort of go more outward. We have the tendency to go inward, mm-hmm. and um, you know, at a certain point, that tendency kind of awakens. Well, I think maybe when the outward tendency has run its course to a sufficient degree, you know, like you were saying in in your younger years, when you know, just a certain point, the outward thing didn't do it for you anymore, <laughs> and so there's a kind of an awaking up to you know, there's, there's got to be more than this. And you see people searching for meaning and connection all the time. You know, Facebook, who'd have thought it? But, you know, people are going on there maybe to, you know, perhaps they use it sometimes in an unhealthy way, but also doesn't it connect us with all the other souls practically on the planet? And isn't that maybe a little bit like going home? Um, And maybe, you know, people perhaps say too much on there, but maybe it's just a need to be heard, a need to connect, a need to share. Um, And then... You know, there's an, also an, an awful lot of fantastic stuff you see on there, spiritual stuff, and that mm-hmm. might awaken people. And, and Facebook is, is one example. And obviously, you've got the internet um, in general um, brings together this mass connection. As much as the internet can be used for some horrific things, it's also can be incredible and quite exciting how hum- humanity can connect, mm-hmm. um, almost in an ether-like place. That's almost like perhaps where we will go later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, you were talking earlier about how in your youth you went through a lot of different religions and spiritual paths and checked them all out, you know, And but there was a time when that wasn't really practicable for anyone. You know, you grew up in a little village someplace and, and you just were, com- all you knew were the traditions of that village. And maybe that had its, its sort of charm and simplicity and, and value. But, you know, these days we have a global village and we're all exposed to everything by, vir- by virtue of the internet and, and other means of communication. Personally, I think that's more of a, a blessing than a curse. I think it mm. sort of enables us to, uh, I think it's actually technological means through which a global awakening is, is, is happening. Yeah. And like you say, there are bad things on the internet, but doesn't that just demonstrate how diverse we are and also brings, up, brings the scum to the surface and hopefully the, you know, the beings of light or the, the people who give a crap can sort that out and change humanity for the better and say, hey, look, this is the worst of us and this is the best of us and we're all mm-hmm. here on this one internet television screen thing let's sort it out and you know sort of go towards the best of us you know because I do think people say I mean I know in, in, in England at the minute this big thing about paedophilia and lots of our um, television stars are being named as having committed sex crimes and stuff maybe 20 30 years ago mm. and um, and all kinds of stuff is, is going on on the internet about that 
and it's it's surely got to be for good and you kind of look at it and think wow there never used to be any kind of paedophilia years ago well there probably was but like you said people lived in tiny little villages and it wasn't blasted all over the internet for everyone to see mm-hmm. and so it's got to be a good thing um, yeah it's got to be a good thing I mean, even that building collapse in Bangladesh, there were, you know, now there's a big outcry about the worker conditions and, and not only the Bangladeshi authorities, but the um, American companies, the Western companies that are employing these people to get them, you know, max, the minimum possible wage uh, are being blasted for their collusion in, in that tragedy. And, and so, you know, so change is afoot as a result of even a tragedy. Absolutely. Later this summer, I might interview um, the couple who put together the movie Thrive. Have you ever seen Thrive? No. It's, it's it's a very interesting movie, but it, it sort of at first it gets you really discouraged because it outlines just how messed up everything is and how you know these really powerful forces seem to be in control of everything and the banking system mm-hmm. and and how they don't give a crap about the environment and you know anything for a profit and and it's and you get kind of get the feeling of what can I do you know I'm just one little person and and even the people who are concerned about this stuff what can they do because these forces seem so powerful but then towards the end of the movie it gets into a much more optimistic vision and and you know when I interview these people I, I hope to take it even a step further with them which is that um, the most powerful thing ultimately is the most subtle I mean physics tells us that the, the subtle the atomic is more powerful than the molecular and so on and the, the subtlest thing of all is what I think what we refer to as spirituality or consciousness it's 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 more and being more subtle it's more uh, influential and and, and so if, if change can be affected on that level there's really nothing which can uh, stand up to it, and that change is occurring. And I think that a lot of the the crises that we're seeing on the surface levels of life are actually just the the, the readjustments that, that necessarily mm. that, that are having to take place as a result of that deeper change that's that's welling up. Yeah, it's almost like little bubbles of mania that need to pop. <laughs> exactly, I mean, if you think about it, there's so many different institutions and uh, economic and social and so many different things that really don't uh, you know in whole industries that really don't deserve to exist in an enlightened world you know they have no intrinsic value they just harm people or or harm the environment and so you know it would stand to reason that those things are going to start getting kind of shaky if if there really is a global awakening taking place that does seem to be happening on all kinds of levels Mm -hmm. Um, and I just think, yeah, we might have to live through some interesting times, possibly some dark events. But again, it's, it's just providing space for change. I forget who said it. It might have been Thoreau or Emerson or something. It was like, may, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's definitely happening. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think the reason this is worth talking about is just that... Um, if you don't have this perspective, it can be rather disturbing. You know, you can, you can feel like, oh my God, what's happening? The, 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 there's no hope for humanity, and so on. But if you kind of do have this perspective, then you can interpret things differently and perhaps see things which others might despair over as being uh, signs of hope. Yeah, yeah. And I've written some articles that have sometimes been rejected for that very reason, hmm. because I've kind of come from the place you know everything happens for a reason and therefore some really really bad stuff can mean good things and people sometimes aren't ready to hear that mm. um, and then they, they kind of 
real at that and I'm like well how can you say that these people are suffering and it's not taking for granted that suffering because I get as upset about suffering as the next person I always have been very sensitive towards other people's pain but I do still believe that pain can you know whether it's personal pain or societal pain can make the biggest changes and the most exciting changes and sometimes we kind of have to suck that up and and move and flow with that and yeah yeah well, if, uh, if we kind of recognize or acknowledge or believe or experience that there is some cosmic intelligence that permeates and, and orchestrates everything, then it's hard not to accept that everything happens for a reason. And, and if, if things do seem capricious and arbitrary, then I guess the person who, who sees things that way doesn't really grok the notion that there is some kind of cosmic intelligence orchestrating everything. I don't see how the two could fit together. Yeah, and I mean, I guess a lot of the time you, you get people saying, oh, well, if there was a god, you know, why does he let children die? Why does he kill my nana? You know, why does he allow war? Well, yeah. I think that's just a misunderstanding of god, and I think, again, that's probably based on a religious fundamental view that, that god is a little fella in the sky who's kind of got it in for us a little bit but loves us you know um, and I think that obviously I don't believe in a God like that I think that there's a more interesting forces abounding <laughs> yeah uh, I think uh, well, my answer to that would be well basically what you just said it's not not an old guy with a beard in the sky but if there's my concept of it in fact I have a friend whose um, daughter was killed in a car crash um, about I don't know 15 years ago and her she had just had a baby the baby was about as old as yours is now and she was killed suddenly and my friend has never gotten over it you know she's just still grieving and you know she she has a really hard time believing that there is any sort of God uh, you know, that could allow such things to happen and um, you know I do my best to buck her up and um, give her a philosophical perspective on it but my perspective is basically that you know, God is all-pervading. That that which I, I refer to as God is, it, there's no place where that intelligence cannot be located in in the midst of in, in, in every iota of every situation, every planet, every galaxy, every subatomic particle. Particle. It's just one solid mass of intelligence, and 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 so all of this is happening within that, and and it's actually if we want to considered that it's happening to somebody it's happening to that by that you know <laughs> that is interacting within itself and the, our conversation is that talking to itself and the the, the poor women in, in Bangladesh in that building are that having that experience um, and so on yeah big <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, so tell us a bit more about your books, I mean, uh, and about yourself in the process of telling us about your books. I don't mean to talk as much as I am, but sometimes it, it kind of goes that way. Um, and my wife is signaling me that I'm talking too much. Admittedly, uh, you know, since I interview a person a week and, and I didn't have a chance to read all of your book, uh, so give us some uh, books, that is. So give us some highlights of what you would like people to know about, you know, your path and how you've chronicled it in these books. Okay, I, I mean, the books, I really 
want them to be, well, I really wrote them to be, you know, loose and interesting and very much like talking to me. So a lot of people who know me will read the book and they're like, Alice, it's just like having a conversation over coffee with you. Um, I want them to be accessible because I am trying to reach people who, like I, I spoke about before, popular culture people who, um, who are young women particularly, but I think guys can read them too and it, it applies the same, it really doesn't make that much difference. If they can put up with a pink cover that's fine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if they're secure in their masculinity yeah. They're fun books they're, I like to think they're funny and humorous, but at the same time there's a great deal of depth there, probably more than the reader might expect with the title. You know, The High Heel Guide to Enlightenment, that, that was the first book that I wrote, um, was very much my take on all kinds of different subjects so you know I went to Buddhism school I explored Wicca um, obviously I was brought up Wicca but I explored it a little bit more things like Kabbalah and uh, spiritualism um, and a whole bunch of other things like tarot and crystal healing healing things, divination things and just explored them really to see what they could bring to me because at that point in my journey I was, I was still in a place where I was trying to get myself better, trying to get myself in a happier place mm -hmm. and actually the amalgamation of all of those things really did help me and then um, you know I think the key towards the end was you know really love and everything that that brings and finding love for myself and love for other people and love for, for life really um, was massively powerful and so the, the journey is there within that book via all these different faiths and it is it can be quite comical I think at times you know me and my high heels turning up at Buddhism school and having to take them off and potter <laughs> about and, and stuff like that but then also the depth that I found within each of these religions and how they personally affected me because I really wanted it I didn't want it to be oh hi my name my name's Alice and I'm going to tell you about Buddhism there's a billion books out there about Buddhism there's a billion books you know about all these different subjects I wanted it to be an experience that I had that I could write about that was very personal that I knew that women and men my sort of age and not necessarily my age but in my generation and maybe a generation either side could really grasp and understand and bring themselves to an understanding of spirituality and so yeah that was the first book that was the journey that I took there but by the end of that book I guess I didn't feel that affiliated with any of those faiths or any of those particular things and what I wanted to do next um, was just to, to live spiritually I just thought can't I just live spiritually can't I just make my own rules up why do I have to you know have um, a, a book that tells me what to do or a bible or a list of mantras I absolutely have to repeat every single morning High Heel Guide to Spiritual Living is my second book mm -hmm. and that was very much about my decision to just go okay none of those other faiths suit me I mean I loved them and they taught me so much and they brought me so much happiness but I just didn't quite feel at home in any of them and um, so I thought well you know Sodic can't I just be a spiritual person can't I just invite spirituality almost into my life and just say okay I'm spiritual and see what the heck happens next mm -hmm. um, and that's basically what I did and that book is, the, is again, it's, it's following that journey, that path of what happened to me when I did that. And it, I guess the, there was a misperception on my part that, you know, oh, I'm spiritual and therefore I'm holier than thou and nothing can ever touch me and, you know, life's going to be so much nicer from now on, which, of course, was the exact opposite. And life at that point decided to become quite chaotic and quite intriguing and, and, it, and I guess it was though I had to ride all those bumps and the book actually turned into 11 lessons sort of ranging from you know the mind and mental health and everything that I had to overcome there 
that which then moved on to you know chaos and perfection and life and physical stuff as well to do with my body and what I was eating and diet and committing to be a proper vegetarian and you know all kinds of things moving through the book so there was like 11 lessons that came out of that that journey for me um, and I learned that yeah being a spiritual person isn't as simple as just putting a hat on and going hey I'm spiritual and um, it's more rigorous as well than reading any kind of text or adhering to any kind of list of top 10 how to be spirituals it was very it was it was almost like I took a great you know big brush and completely brushed my head out and brushed my life out and just changed everything and so that is really what goes on in the High Hill Guide to Spiritual Living. It's, it's that next stage. It's the decision to be spiritual made manifest in one woman's life. So, yeah, that, that was an interesting trip. And I hope that, again, there's, it's, there's comedy in there as well as, you know, hopefully a, a good deal of wisdom. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. And then the third book, uh, Dear Poppy Seed, that's out actually um, in a couple of months in July the, the thought that came to my mind as you were saying that was, you know, it's like there's a saying that, that my former teacher used to say that is when the postman knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail. In other words, when a deep shift takes place in your spiritual orientation, then all the surface stuff has to has to be rearranged uh, in order to accommodate that deeper shift. And so, like you said, you know, you kind of had the attitude that, oh, well, if I just wake up, everything's going to be smooth and groovy and I'll be a spiritual person. But that's actually very often when the when the work really starts because there's so many things that are out of alignment with a deeper spirituality that have to change. And that, you know, we, we tend to get a little bit ingrained in our habits and, 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 you know, some of these things could go back decades, if not lifetimes. And so, you know, a lot of rearrangement has to take place a lot of shifts yeah um i absolutely agree with that and that's actually something that kind of when you talk about um things that go back lifetimes that mm-hmm. just rings a bell with me because in my first book um the high hill guide to enlightenment um i had a past life regression mm-hmm. and um it turned out that i was a nun and it was such a powerful experience it was incredible i've got a cat here by the way oh i often have mine on my lap during the yeah. in fact she was on my lap during the is that is that Molly or Jimmy? This is Molly. She ah. likes. As soon as the baby is out of my way, she's like on my na- my lap. She just absolutely. She was my first little girl, and I think she mm. feels quite jealous. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, the, I had this experience. The past life regression. It turned out I was a nun. I was a nun in a, a orphanage who looked after babies all mm. the time, and it kind of explained my mild dislike for babies, which I'd had previous obviously to having Ivy and previous in my life I'd kind of always thought well I never want a baby hard work horrible I'm sure a lot of people feel that way but this kind of I didn't expect that to come up because I didn't have a phobia of babies you know I just wasn't keen and it's almost quite strange as I look at my spiritual path that's taken me from having you know exploring different faiths to then going through into my second book the high heel guide to spiritual living and having to do this work that that you're talking about um, to become a spiritual person and it's you know or a more spiritual person and and all the crap that you have to clear out of your life and out of your brain and out of your heart and soul and and body and then at the end of that the third book books aside in my life I got pregnant and had a baby and it's the best thing that ever happened and it wasn't where I saw this journey going not Mm -hmm. at all probably 
you know, if I'm honest, when I wrote the first book, I probably thought I was going to become a best-selling author, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um you know, maybe enlighten a few people along the way. The second book, I probably realised that wasn't the way things were going. It was more about a personal journey and what I had to, to shift. And then the third book was actually, hey, this is real life. You're going to have a baby and you're going to like it. And it's not going to be like when you were in a nun in the first book. <laughs> mm. So it's interesting how these things come about and it's not quite how you expect, but again, can be so consuming, whether that's because you fly off to barley or something and uh, you know doing yoga noon and morning and night um, or whether because you know you're experiencing spirituality as I feel I am at this particular moment through having brought in a new life mm. um, and I've probably just gone way off what you actually said there. No not really um, and I read some of the passages in your book uh, your new one which isn't published yet you, you sent me the manuscript about your love for your baby and it was really moving I've never had a child, and uh, even if I had, I don't think it would be quite the same as a mother's love, the intensity and depth of that. But it was very beautifully expressed, and uh, and perhaps the depth and intensity of it was augmented by your the spiritual foundation you had built, you know, in the last decade or whatever. It was, it was beautiful. Well, I feel very connected to it, and I felt very connected to her years before she was even born you know there was a period like like I say where I wasn't particularly keen on babies I didn't think I'd have one or wanted one I just thought them as a bit of a nuisance and then after I'd had that past life regression I did kind of move to a place where I was started to get a little bit broody and you know sort of fantasize about what it might be like and I always thought about this daughter I was going to have I was going to have this one daughter I didn't want any more just this one daughter and that that's kind of what manifested itself whether that was because that was what was meant to be, or otherwise, I'm not sure, but I always felt very connected to her, to her spirit, to her soul. I know a lot of people will say that when they had their children, they, the child comes out and they kind of, they don't know them, and they have to get to know them. Whereas I feel with Ivy, I knew her from before she was even conceived, and I still feel that, and so she doesn't surprise me. I feel very, very connected to her, and and yeah, the love I feel for her is far surpasses anything I've ever felt in my life. It's absolutely incredible. I'm sure many mothers will be able to attest to the same thing. It's absolutely, you know, I've gone on this spiritual path, the first book, the second book, brilliant, mind-altering, world-altering stuff, but nothing compared to meeting that little girl. Mm. You know, it's just absolutely overwhelming and astounding and words don't describe it and I've got to be careful now because I could just sit and talk here about how amazing it is for the next however long but yeah I think when I look at spiritual growth she's given it me more than any of it more than anything I've tried to get for myself you know just being with this little person and being consumed by her and living moment to moment and and just the purity of it all that's beautiful it's, and it's a point that I don't know if has ever been brought out in any of my interviews, you know, motherhood as a spiritual path <laughs> and uh, how, how powerful and profound it can be. It's, it's, it is, and it's... Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing it out. Yeah. Do you know what, Rick? It's heartbreaking as well. It's absolutely heartbreaking because you're so in love with this child. Mm-hmm. And then you look at all the other children and you kind of feel this love for them as well. Mm-hmm. And then you look at all the people, the adult people, and you think, well, they used to be like Ivy, mm-hmm. you know, so I've got to love that. You know, they're incredibly lovable as well, even the really awful, horrific ones. And then you start looking on the wider scheme and you see all the awful stuff that goes on in life. And and it's horrendous. And, and, and <laughs> you know, you can really take it to all kinds of extremes. You know, I'm quite a feminist kind of person. I get frustrated now that the whole idea of motherhood has been kind of just 
made to be nothingness by our society, you know, and instead we worship business and economics and building stuff and war and, and no offence, man stuff. Everything that man has achieved has kind of been put up on a pedestal, whereas things like motherhood has been put way down here. And it's like, isn't it the most important thing in the world? Because, you know, it's with the mother that everything starts. Yeah. And that you can form people and, you know, hopefully make a better human race. And so, yeah, this whole motherhood thing, it, and it's all very internal. I don't particularly go out espousing these views very often. In fact, it's probably the first time I've actually said them because it's all going on up here quite a lot of the time. But as a spiritual awakening of its own, you know, in part you've got the one-on-one -on -one relationship with the child and then all this other stuff that follow, comes on the back of that and, and humanity and the sake of, you know, everything that's going on. It's kind of crazy. And like, I'm only 11 months in. so. <laughs> <laughs> There's a saying... Uh Personal love is concentrated universal love. And you, you were saying about, uh, I have so much love for this child, but how about all the other children? How about all the other people who are once children and so on and so forth? And I think it's, you know, it's completely natural for a person to have intense personal love for their child, you know, because we're, we are universality, but we're universality in an, you know, having taken an individual form, and the individual form performs its individual functions, one of which is to, you know, love its individual offspring. <laughs> and obviously there are people who, who assume a lifestyle which, by its very nature, is more universal, such as, you know, somebody like Mother Teresa, or, and of course she was at an older age, but uh, there have even been young people like that in their 20s and 30s who have had this sort of universal role to play and have had a much more equal vision of all people and loved them unconditionally and so on. But, you know, that's their role. And so, I mean, if your role, it, it, you, you shouldn't feel in the least bit imbalanced or selfish or anything because your love for this one little be, being is so great and, and you, you, you're, neglect, you're being neglectful of all the other seven, seven billion. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot of work. <laughs> right. A lot of nappies to change. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it has really altered everything that I thought I was and that I thought I was going to do and I'm sure it will continue to do so and you know since having a I've spent that I've spent quite a lot of time kind of wrestling with myself you know what do I do next in my career what's my next book what's my next this you know what's my next that and I don't know anymore and I'm kind of okay with that mm -hmm. you know because you know I've, I've spent so long trying to promote my books and spent so long trying to think about what that next thing is career-wise and it's just got to the point, I just don't care anymore. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, that's just the honest truth. Um, and I know I probably shouldn't say that on a radio show where I'm actually talking about my books. But it just doesn't seem to matter anymore. And it's really nice doing this interview because I think we booked it uh, like a long time ago, didn't we? So yeah. whenever we booked it in, I was probably in a very different place. Then, and I was still in a place where I was trying to promote my stuff and get it out there. And and obviously I still will do that when opportunities like that, like this come up where, you know, we've booked it and it's there and it's great and I get to talk about spiritual stuff and that's really nice. But I don't know, I just feel like I've moved on to a different plane of existence almost and I forget that I've written books and I forget, you know, that anything exists other than Ivy and that relationship and mm -hmm. that's just the honest truth. So, yeah. yeah. That's where I'm at. And if you really want to, if we really want to be in tune with all the spiritual platitudes that we hear so commonly, then that's totally perfect. I mean, you're in the now. You're you're doing, 
your dharma. You're serving the function which you're meant to be serving at this time. You know, whether it's the function you're going to be serving 10 years from now, who can say? But, uh, you know, it's certainly not unspiritual in the least. And, and I wouldn't say it's any less spiritual than some guy who's sitting in a monastery, you know, and meditating all day long or something. It's, it's, you know, that saying how, uh, ordinarily we're, we're human beings having spiritual experiences but really we're spiritual beings having a human experience you know that you know (laughs) yeah you know that saying and i think we can actually take it even a step back and say we are being itself not spiritual because spiritual beings is that in itself is isolated but we are being itself having human experiences cat experiences baby experiences you know just sort of knowing knowing itself through all these forms and I think sometimes we can search too hard for spirituality, mm-hmm. and actually it's not quite our time yet to float off into the ether. So why, you know, <laughs> we're here in human bodies, having all our human feelings, and I guess all the good and the bad that comes with that, for a reason. And sometimes I think it's too easy to try to escape into some mental version of spirituality, you know, to try and get away from from our lives as they are, and actually. It would there was better sometimes to just throw ourselves into our lives and and forget all the rest and just get on with what's what's in front of us. Um, but then I'm in a very happy place. That's really easy for me to say that at the moment. Um, and I understand not everybody is. And sometimes you you know I had to do the work to get to where I am now. And it, like you say, who knows that might not last. It might change. It might be that I'll suddenly have an amazing idea for the next book and bang, that's it, I'm back on type, type, type. I really don't know, but I'm just, I'm fed up with thinking about it because, you know, I was trying, you know, to look after my little baby and at the same time wondering, so what's next for me, without really recognising for a little while that what was next for me was what I was doing right there and then. And and as soon as I kind of accepted that and recognised it, my life's felt a lot calmer and I felt a lot happier and, you know, and, and recognizing that Ivy's the most important thing mm-hmm. for however long, forever, maybe. <laughs> yeah. There's this book uh, called uh, Collision with the Infinite by Suzanne Siegel, and one of the, a phrase she repeats over and over in the book is, do the next obvious thing. And she had had a spiritual awakening, which really frightened her because she didn't know what it was, but because there was a sudden dramatic loss of ego. But, you know, after that spiritual awakening, she went on for a decade, sort of still trying to figure out what had happened to her, but, you know, raising a daughter and getting a PhD and just, and her whole, her mantra was, do the next obvious thing. And the reason I like that is that if, if we again acknowledge that we're swimming in an ocean of intelligence, then Things are divinely orchestrated. Things happen for a reason. And, and so it's like the world can be your guru if you recognize that that, that is the case and yeah. take advantage of the of what's offered to you in this case in this case a a baby daughter you know yeah and i'm literally you know i like that what you just said i mean i'm literally counting on that i I don't have the time with looking after ivy to go out and look for anything um whether it's a pizza or a guru you know i'm kind of hoping they're going to find me Um, (laughs) seriously (laughs) you know I, i just don't have the time i don't even know how to begin to think about that and it's quite interesting you know recently I was thinking oh, I'd really like to go to a sweat lodge because I love doing sweat, lo- sweat lodges I've done a few of them and I haven't got the time to think about that at the minute or even to get involved in sending an email um, and I saw some friends of mine on Facebook they were talking about sweat lodges and I, I was quite envious and I thought oh, I'd love that I'd love that um, but I didn't do anything about it and then 
like 10 minutes later, I got an email from my local sweat lodge master um, saying that I was welcome to come to the next one, um, which is actually next weekend. And it was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> think about it, and it happens. <laughs> Obviously, that was meant to be. Um, and I guess anything else that I think about or, you know, allow my mind to dwell on and it doesn't happen, I'm just kind of, okay, that's not meant to be at the minute. And I just, yeah, I like to think that I'm, I'm swimming in a place where, where it's meant to be will happen, and if it mm. doesn't, it doesn't. And it's a nice place to be, and it is, you know, it's a different place to be, and it has affected things, you know, things like ego and mind. You know, I think we all struggle with that. And but again, having Ivy, I haven't got time for that either. <laughs> really. <laughs> well, that brings out a nice point too, which is that you know, if we are going with the flow, so to speak, or if we're if we're cooperating with the flow of intelligence that is you know, displaying its, its, its beauty all around us, then very often we find that when we have an impulse of some sort, a desire of some sort, that it manifests quite easily. And, you know, there's that whole thing of trying to do that willfully and visualizing and putting little stick notes on your mirror and that whole, the secret, you know, that whole thing. But it, it, it really can be much more... Um, spontaneous and natural I think than that you're just kind of rolling along and whatever you need you know maybe an uh, genuinely need an impulse will come and then that will get fulfilled sometimes it gets fulfilled even before you know you need it I struggle with all the manifesting stuff I don't I find it really difficult and I know there's so many people out there telling you how to manifest money how to manifest better houses you know that it's okay and you know also at the same time telling you it's okay to be spiritual and manifest money or manifest jobs or ma and it probably is and it's, but it's all a bit convoluted really and I kind of think you know why don't you just sit back and see what actually happens mm. <laughs> so that's what I've had to do because I've tried to do all of these things and you know I've got look here's my board <laughs> I did this ages ago but the only thing that I actually care about that came true on it was this little baby face there yeah little baby oh, sexy mama that's quite embarrassing I suppose that was, well that, that part was necessary for that part to happen <laughs> yeah I did that I, was, I don't normally do things like that but I did mm -hmm. it and you know I just kind of think actually I then forgot about it and let it go and that's probably the more powerful thing to do and I think sometimes things like the secret yeah, it probably works, and for some people it will work particularly, but maybe they're more in tune with what their natural path in life should be anyway. Um, and I think you can get confused if you're not in a good place in your head and you can try to manifest things that perhaps aren't right for you or perhaps aren't right for you at this moment in time um, yeah. and they're not going to happen or they will happen and not make you very happy. So I'm just in a place where I'm literally doing nothing. Apart from looking after Ivy, we'll see. Well, there's a couple of things come to mind. One is the saying, deserve, then desire, you know. I mean, if we just go around desiring Cadillacs and, and jewelry and stuff, it can be a little bit cart before the horse. Uh, you know, there has to be a sort of a level of, of deservability. And then, and then the desires which arise will be the appropriate ones, you know, not necessarily some societally prescribed ones. And another thing which you said, triggered a thought is that um, in the Yoga Sutras there's, of Patanjali there's this process known as Sanyama uh, and it has to do with you know firstly having the awareness established at a very subtle level level of pure consciousness and then having a desire but letting it go 
mm-hmm. you know, having a thought, yeah. having an intention of some sort, but not pursuing it outward, rather yeah. just sort of let, letting it melt back into the self, let melt back into consciousness. Just one more thing that triggers is in the Gita, there's this phrase that Lord Krishna says, curving back on myself, I create again and again. Krishna, of course, is supposed to be the Lord of the universe, and so he's saying that I do this, create this universe by not by sort of outward effort, but by curving back on myself. So I think that all pertains to what you just said. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. That was actually, and it's you know, again, since having Ivy, I've had so many thoughts, and just let them go. Mm -hmm. And I know that some of them might come to something one day. But I'm just trusting, and that's what I do these days. You know, I feel like I've got myself spiritually in a good place, a happy place. I'm happy with Ivy, and then the rest of it, I just know, I just have this faith. It's going to flow, it's going to happen, and it's really not my problem <laughs> at the minute. You know, it's not my problem up here. It will just, and I think I've spent that much time in my life trying to make things happen up here. We all do it. it it's just a waste of energy. It's like worry. What's the point in worrying? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the point? You know, it's the same thing to me. It's that desperately trying to control things with the mind. And um, actually, the the best way to gain any kind of control is to just stop that and to stop the mind from doing those kind of things because it's a futile exercise a lot of the time. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a it's a question of you know understanding who's really in charge. You know, I mean, are, is our mind really running the show? Yeah, we'd like to think so, but it's <laughs> that's sort of gymnastics to try and get it to do that. But <laughs> yeah, and we're kind of what we're really doing is a, it's a sort of thievery where we're assuming the authorship of action, which actually doesn't rightfully belong to us. It belongs to something deeper than our individual sort of ego and intellect and mind, and and kind of you know melting back into a more surrendered or cooperative way of functioning. And I can think of, you know, examples of people who are in your situation, you know, a young mother who feel frustrated by, you know, oh, what about all my hopes and dreams? You know, what about I wanted to be a famous authoress? I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to blah, blah, blah. And it may seem sexist but to say so, but I, I kind of feel like you, you really got it right in terms of uh, just living the the role that uh, that you're playing to the fullest and you know just um, not worrying about that, uh, that other stuff so much right now because that's not what's happening <laughs> you know this is what's yeah, happening uh, and I'm lucky you know I did the I, I wrote books and stuff before I had Ivy I mean I wouldn't say I was a famous authoress but I'm certainly an authoress and um, <laughs> you know so I had I've done that but mm-hmm. there are all the places I would probably like to take it but yeah it, it just doesn't like I said before, it just doesn't matter anymore. I think having a child, and you were talking about the spirituality of motherhood, mm-hmm. it, it just is, a, it, like I said, it's overwhelming. It just takes over. It puts this new perspective on things, and it completely shifts, you know, all that other desires and ambitions out the door. But like you said, there are lots of people who do probably feel those drives and ambitions. And I guess for them, as for anyone who's had a child, it's not going to be the right time. And maybe for them as it is for me it's an exercise in laying back and seeing what happens in their world because people can still achieve things with children sure Um, it might not be straight away and it might or it might you know they might have to learn to juggle (laughs) Mm -hmm. who knows but you know life it could go on for quite a long time after having a child and you know maybe their days of becoming a famous author are so going to be when they're 50 rather than when they're you know, 30. Yeah. Hey, I'm 64. I feel like I'm almost, I will be in the fall, but I feel like I'm just sort of coming into a phase of life which is, you know, most fulfilling I've had yet and everything is kind of 
led up to this, you know? Well, society's so skewed, it kind of puts all this pressure on the young people to achieve stuff and, and then you obviously you look at you turn the television on and everyone's young and this is pressure that you should have achieved something by the time you're 18 it's like <laughs> I didn't even know anything when I was 18 and I was <laughs> it's just ridiculous I was just having fun but isn't that what 18 year olds do yeah. you know unless you Justin Bieber and you get paid a lot of money for it <laughs> and you know he's probably having his own little crisis from what I oh yeah he, he apparently can't <laughs> handle it very okay? well no yeah. but who could when they were 18 right. you know um, I don't even think he's 18, bless him. I think he's 17, but mm. you know that's his that's his path. Yeah, I think there's this pressure on the young to to achieve so much, and you know, school particularly. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, does it really matter? Because mm. you might change your mind anyway by the time you're 30 or 40 or 15. You might go back to university when you're 16, qualify as a doctor. Who knows? You know, mm. people can change their mind. Probably should, because probably what you decide to do at the age of 18 ain't for you for a lifetime that's a scary thought if we all did what we thought we were going to be when we were 18 I think I wanted to be a rock star or something at that point Uh, yeah I think I was an actress (laughs) (laughs) you know one other thought that comes to mind based on what you've been saying about your daughter is that um, in some traditions it's understood that after there's a certain degree of establishment of self-awareness you know self with a big S universal self then that provides a foundation for the development of the heart, you know. And so it, it, it would almost seem that your life has followed that pattern, and and that the opportunity for developing your heart has been your daughter, who has, mm-hmm. you know, given you a taste of a much more profound love than you had ever, or, or at least of a different sort than you had ever known, you know. And and so in that sense, also this motherhood thing is is very profoundly a spiritual practice. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, on so many levels, it's like indescribable, really. You know, and it's very, she's very addictive as well. It's, the whole thing is just, it's incredible. I'm going to do that thing now where I go off using lots of big words about how amazing I am. <laughs> but it is, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's difficult to describe because I'm still in the middle of the beginning of it. You know, it's going to go on for the rest of my life. And she's powerful. Being around her is powerful. I remember when I was pregnant, I had a dream. Um, which I think just describes quite how powerful um, she is. In that I dreamt, I knew I was having a little girl, and but I was still quite early pregnant. And I dreamt that there was this grown woman came to me mm-hmm. and said, "Mom, can you uh, change my nappy for me?" <laughs> and it was a grown woman, and she was there. And I was thinking, "Yeah, all right then, come here." <laughs> and you know, she showed me how to do it. And she must have been 30 or 40 in this dream. You know, she was by no means a young person and I was perfectly happy to change her nappy and then for some reason I walked into a bathroom and there was like a bidet and somebody had done a toilet in the bidet and I was really angry with them I was like why do I have to clean up other people's mess but I was so happy to clean up her nappy and this was, a, this was all in the dream yes. yeah and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh thank god um, but that's my life now for the rest of my life I'm going to be happy to clean up this girl's messes um, I think was the, the message of that dream and it's just to suddenly devote yourself when you've lived a life that's very much your own mm-hmm. um, which we all do and I guess for men that goes on infinitely you know even if they become a father there's still that slight removal from the child probably probably I don't know I'm not a guy but yeah to suddenly devote yourself wholeheartedly physically mentally time your energy everything 24-7 to one person is it's mega. Um, it sounds like it's, it is exhausting, but it's absolutely mega. It's incredible, um, and it is. It just 
I haven't, still haven't quite got the words to describe it, and maybe, maybe that'll be another book somewhere down the line, I don't know. But I like the way you described it. <laughs> <laughs> I forget how I did. Oh, in terms of the devotional yeah. uh, unfoldment, yeah. Yeah, yeah and the, the heart getting bigger, I feel like, yeah. Yeah, no, maybe it's... Maybe I need to carry my heart, like... Mm-hmm. in a trailer at the back or something and drag it along because it's so huge in love with her. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and as you are saying much earlier in the interview, you know, every ex- I think you were saying every experience we have makes an impression on us. And they talk about the, the term neuroplasticity, how every experience kind of changes the brain somewhat. And so, you know, imagine how transformative the intensity of that love is on, on your whole makeup, that, the intensity of what you're experiencing. How nourishing. Well, I feel so completely changed already, and I know I've got a lot more probably to, to come. You know, um, I was meditating with Ivy, actually. I was nursing her, um, and she was kind of asleep. So I was just, I thought, I'll take five minutes. I don't much, get much time to meditate these days. And I was meditating, and it was almost like I connected with her soul. Mm. And it, we had a conversation, and she, we were talking... I said, why, why are we here together? Um, and she said that she was here to challenge and to change me. Um, and I said, oh, right. I don't know about that challenging bit, but anyway. <laughs> but um, why, why am I here for you? And she said, to inspire me. Hmm. Um, and I just thought that was so interesting. And, and that's, that was a week or so ago that that happened. Um, and I'm just left with that, and there's a warmth from that because... You know, it's nice that I have that purpose for her, and for me, that sounds definitely interesting. Um, yeah. Well, you know, um, what you just said uh, reminded me of a question that's been kind of percolating for the last 10 minutes or so. And they say you can't choose your parents, but mm-hmm. again, in some traditions, it's understood that you do choose your parents. You know, you. I think you probably would, yeah. Yeah, you think, okay, well, this this particular couple and this mother, this father are going to be conducive to helping me work out what I need to work out and, you know, achieve the next stage of my evolution. And perhaps there's some whole history that you have with this particular being and so on. And, uh, and like you say, she, she feels like a very powerful being or a very powerful soul. And, um, I mean, that alone, you know, if, if we think of uh, tr- examples in history, just to, I don't know, this is what comes to mind, is, you know, did, 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 Ram, did Ramana Maharshi's mother waste her time, you know, uh, focusing all of her attention on a baby, you know? Well, look what that baby ended up doing for the world, or, or Jesus, or, you know. So, um, and even if, obviously, if your daughter doesn't become some great spiritual leader or something, you know, I'm just playing with the thought. Uh, Maybe her daughter will. Yeah, you never know. I mean, <laughs> you just don't know, do you? <laughs> right. It's, you know, and and the thing is, it's how many people do you need to connect to? How many people do you need to change? How many, you know, how many lives do you need to change to make a difference? It can just be one. Exactly. You know, whoever, whoever you are, and you know, I'm lucky that I've written books and people have read them, um, but I do feel blessed in that respect, and that I was ever published um, is amazing. But right now, the the idea of affecting her life is far more prevalent and far heavier weight on my soul than any of that you know mm-hmm. um, and hopefully whatever she takes from, from that upbringing because I know with my parents they certainly made me who I am mm-hmm. and had they not been the way they were I wouldn't have done what I've done um, and, and I guess that passes down now to her and you know and then she will pass that on to her children should she have them and 
and maybe it's, it's, it's all just part of those little ripples that ripple out and change things. The closer to the source you can influence something, the more influential you can be. Like if you could change the course of a river way up near its source, you know, you can really change it. But if you try doing it way down near the delta where it's going into the ocean, it's too late. The river has already flowed that way. Obviously, we can be very influential, as, you, as you're implying, uh, on huge amounts of people based upon how we raise a child, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm all about how I raise her. I mean, I've, I hadn't thought about it that much before I had her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was more obsessed with being pregnant and the whole, you know, romance mm-hmm. of that because that right. was a beautiful experience and, you know, connected to the soul. Um, but then, yeah, I, I do want to raise her in a spiritual way and I want to raise her with so much love, which isn't really difficult, um, <laughs> as you might guess. Um, I, just, I just wanted to be a wise little soul. I'm not going to pressurize her to be a wise little soul, but I think she already kind of is, um, you know, to to bring out the beauty of life for her and, and see what she does with that, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm very much into attachment parenting and being attached to her and letting her know that she's loved and adored and so that she feels safe to go out in the world and do whatever it is that she decides to do. Yeah, but without putting any pressure on her to, to do that, you know, I might even homeschool her and things like that. And mm-hmm. when, you were, uh, when you were pregnant with her, was there a particular time, say several months in, where you suddenly felt her soul enter... Oh, I did. Yeah. It was, um, oh, what was it? It was a problem. It was very, 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 very early on. Um, well, I actually felt her implants in me, and I mm-hmm. was convinced. I knew from the, I knew from the beginning that I was pregnant. But I kind of kept trying to convince myself I wasn't, just because I didn't want to get disappointed. And I kind of knew, and I'd have dreams, and I'd see this little baby's face. But then, the day before I took the pregnancy test. Um, I was on a course, a, sh- a shamanic training course, um, and we did a shamanic journey to, I can't remember where, to the underworld, went down under, um, and basically within that, I, I was suspected I was pregnant, I didn't know for definite, and within that shamanic journey, um, I went into the jungle and I was kind of hanging out there with some big animals, and then all of a sudden this, this spirit came to me and it was a man, and it was a kind of Tarzan almost type character mm-hmm. um, is how I could describe him. And he, I knew he, he was the spirit or the spirit guide or related to my unborn child that I suspected I was pregnant with. And at that moment in time, he just came, like moved into me. And it was the most, one of the most mind-blowing experiences of my life. And afterwards, we kind of came out of the shamanic experience and we all had to go around the group and kind of talk about what had happened and I could barely speak I was shaking it was really profound really profound obviously this is all in the diary because dear poppy seed is the diary of my pregnancy and so all of these kind of things are in there as well as you know the other weird stuff I had like stingy nipples and (laughs) down to earth gritty stuff as well but yeah that was yeah I felt this this spirit moved into me and at that moment I knew I was pregnant and then that night randomly went to a cage fight because my husband's friend was in a cage fight and I just remember feeling so like nervous there because it was kind of brutal male atmosphere and I kind of knew I knew I was pregnant I did the pregnancy test the next day and then yeah there she was it's weird how you kind of know these things, or some people know these things. Yeah, my, my sister and her husband uh, have two kids, and, and he uh, had a very clear experience. Funny, it was him, not her, but had a very clear experience with both children of when they 
entered the womb. And in some traditions, it's said that it's usually not until the you know the end of the first trimester or something, and which has interesting implications for the whole argument about abortion and stuff. I mean, it's, we won't go there, but it's sort of interesting to ponder the more metaphysical dimensions of that. But anyway, I don't know. I just thought like felt like bringing it up to just to see. Yeah. And, and you did have a story about it, so that was yeah. interesting. And I was, I was lucky. I, it was a lovely experience. And then, obviously, throughout that, my diary, uh, dear Poppy, see, there's all kinds of experiences. Like I say, the, the very physical, day-to-day cravings and sickness, as well as the more spiritual and empowering things, as well as things I learned because I learned an awful lot. A pregnancy, the nine months, you need it to get ready and to prepare and to get your head into a better place because there's always mm. remnants of some rubbish up there that needs sorting out and pregnancy really helps straighten a lot of my rubbish out. That's interesting. I never considered that. I mean, obviously your body starts going through a lot of stuff and a lot of women like, you know, Kate Middleton and all with the with the vomiting and <laughs> your body's your body's undergoing an adjustment, but I never thought of it in terms of the mind going undergoing an adjustment. Oh, you've got to get ready. Well, I mean, I suppose because I, I like to think I'm quite a conscious person, I'm a spiritual person, I want to be the best vessel that I can be for my child, but I also want to be prepared for when she comes out, and I'm not talking prepared as in having enough diapers, I'm talking... I want to be the right person for her, and I want yeah. to be the best person for her. Mm-hmm. And so there were, there were things that, um, that we had, my husband as well had to work through. You know, my husband and I, and I talk about this in the book, had had a very, very, very rocky period um, not long before I got pregnant with Ivy. You know, we kind of worked through that together as a couple, but then when I was pregnant, you know, he had to then work on his stuff more, and I had to work on my stuff separately and as a couple, you know, to make sure that we were happy, we were in a good place, we were, you know, in a mm. loving relationship. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of transformation needs to go on in those nine months, and um, you know, whilst baby is brewing and and growing, and um, there's also a whole lot of stuff going on mentally and emotionally with the parents. Yeah, interesting. It's like nature is kind of like molding you to, to be ready for this. And it, it, just like we were saying earlier, when spirituality dawns, then the personality undergoes a lot of changes. Well, it looks, sounds like the same thing happens with pregnancy. It's like, okay, this is going to happen, so you've got to get ready. Here, I'm going to put you through this kind of change and that kind of change. Yeah, put you through a ringer. <laughs> yeah. Huh. And your husband, incidentally, is a rock musician, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. just thought I'd mention that for kicks. Super Revolver is his band. Huh. And his music's, you know... It's definitely, um, it's got a spir- I think any musician has got a spiritual influence to their music, whether they recognize it or not, or whether mm-hmm. they were completely high maybe when they were writing it. I think that even then they're probably connected to something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think any artist or creative person is connected, even whether, like I say, whether they recognize it or not. Um, yeah. So it's, we kind of get on in that creative sense. Yeah, nice. Um, okay, so we've covered a bunch of stuff. Um, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to bring out before we wrap it up? Did I mention how much I loved Ivy? Uh, no, who's <laughs> Ivy? <laughs> you mean that plant that grows up the side of walls? <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I can't think of anything else, to be honest. My brain's not there all the time. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> this is the most I've been talking about spirituality in a long time, but it's been a pleasure. 
It's kind of like you shouldn't eat when you have a full stomach because you, you know your 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 stomach needs the blood and not your brain. So maybe you shouldn't uh, give interviews when you've just had a baby because you, all the blood's in your heart, <laughs> all those all the energy all the energies <laughs> in your heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but this has been great. I've really enjoyed this, and it's it's an it's an you know we've discussed some things that I haven't discussed in any other interview, and you know it gets a little tedious, the same old non-duality stuff. But um, it's nice to explore some other dimensions of spirituality and talk about motherhood we haven't I, not that I'm an expert but you are and, and we ha, I have that hasn't been brought up in any of these interviews so and it's coincidentally there was some young mother that just emailed me just last week that said oh god this is so difficult and I'm so tired and it's so exhausting and, and all that stuff so maybe for her alone this will be uh, yeah. valuable well for her it is tiring it is tiring you know I'm I'm wobbling on about how amazing and wonderful and uh, incredible it is, but oh my God, it's tiring. You know, I've never been tired like it, but it gets easier. I don't know how old her baby is, but it does get easier, and you just get on with it because it goes so quickly. You know, Ivy's gone from like Diddy this big, and now she's this sort of big, and she's nearly <laughs> walking, and yeah. you just got to take pleasure in it all. Try to take pleasure in it all as much as you can, even the really tough bits, even the waking up in the middle of the night and mm-hmm. singing. Uh, I do that with our cat, you know, so what the heck? (laughs) Yeah, and you know, each child, whether you have more than one or whatever, but each child only happens once, and Mm -hmm. you know, it's all experience, and it all helps us to grow, and hopefully what I've said about how much I've grown will help that lady. I think it will, and help a lot of other people. So, so great. Let me just wrap it up. I've been speaking with Alice Grist, and if you've listened to the whole interview, you know a lot about her, so I don't need to rehash it, but uh, I will be linking to her website from batgap.com and also linking to her books on Amazon in case you'd like to purchase them. This interview has been one in an ongoing series. They're all archived at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. There are several things you'll find there which I always like to mention. One is that a little discussion springs up around each interview, which usually results in anywhere from 100 to nearly a thousand posts, people chiming in and talking about whatever the interview inspires. There's a little tab there you can click on to sign up and be notified by email every time a new interview is posted, so feel free to do that. There's a donate button that I appreciate people clicking if they have the wherewithal. It's kind of necessary for this whole thing to keep rolling. There is a link to an audio podcast so that if you prefer to listen to this on an iPod or or an MP3 player rather than have to sit in front of your computer and watch the video of it, you can subscribe to that. That's just about it. So uh, thanks again, Alice. It's been great. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks to those who have been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week.